0: So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Now. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Sam Friedman and Daniel Laurison, who are uh, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the LSE in London, and an Assistant Professor of Sociology at Swarthmore College, uh, which is in, near Philadelphia or? Near Philadelphia, yeah. In, in the U.S. And they've written this uh, amazing and, and really kind of important book called The Class Ceiling, White It Pays to be Privileged. Um, Now, normally I'd ask you to start with, I guess, a kind of like technical, you know, set of uh, of questions, you know, maybe kind of lay out the book's arguments. But actually, I'd quite like you to just tell me a story to give the listeners a sense of what the book is about. And that story is is the story of this guy, Mark, that opens the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Mark um, has really stood out to us as, um, I suppose, an individual case um, that really symbolised a lot of the overarching drivers of the class ceiling that came out of um, the fieldwork as a whole. Mark was a senior uh, commissioner at 6TV, one of the largest um, television channels in the UK. It's obviously a pseudonym. Mark was from a um, a very privileged background. His parents were both successful professionals. Uh, He was educated at one of the country's top private schools, um, went on to Oxford, and he really had one of the most coveted jobs in, in the UK television industry. Um, and he did, enjoyed this really quite smooth um, and um, rapid progression through television's ranks. Um, what was interesting when we came to speak to him um, was his sort of acknowledgment that um, that success um, had been contingent on sort of starting the race, as he put it, uh, with a series of advantages. Um, for a start, he talked about the fact that he did have lots of objective merits, um, but that his merits had had a chance to shine. They'd had a, a platform. Um, and much of this, he, he he told us straight away, was sort of directly supplied by his parents, Um, his father had sort of helped him to get into television through contacts. Um, But more than that, they had provided this sort of quite powerful um, economic safety net, this sort of um, financial insulation um, that had tidied him him over for uh, many years when he was sort of jockeying around for a permanent contract in the television industry. And in that way, he sort of very much symbolised this wider theme of of the bank of mum and dad, um, which came across across our, our, our professions, but I think particularly in the culture and creative industries um, as this sort of way in which um, people from privileged backgrounds have a whole set of advantages that sort of flow from um, this sense of um, security that they have from their backgrounds, um, from, from, from um, their, their, their parents' financial resources.
0: I mean, it, it strikes me... There's loads of things to unpack there in Mark's story. But maybe the two big things are this idea about, as you, you say, the kind of starting the race ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And this metaphor is, you know, I think kind of captured in this idea of social mobility about, you know, certain people starting somewhere mm. and ending up somewhere else, other people starting somewhere and ending up actually quite close to where they've started. Mm. Um, so it'd be useful to hear a bit more about the idea of social mobility on the one hand. But also, you've mentioned this kind of set of resources or advantages, capitals, um, you know, which is one of the kind of technical terms that covers economic, social, cultural um, resources or capitals. And to hear about how they play out in terms of social mobility. Sure.
2: I mean, I think people talk a lot about equality of opportunity and equality of, of, uh, you know, everyone should have an equal chance. And there's a lot that goes into the idea of mobility that is in some ways used, I think, to legitimate broader inequalities, right? As long as everybody's got a fair shot, then we don't have to worry so much if the people at the top are making 10 or 20 or 30 or a hundred times what the people at the bottom are making. And so part of the broad context of this book for us is um, sort of looking at that idea of meritocracy, that idea that people all should have or in reality do have an equal shot. And for us, we're looking at it among folks who've already had a great amount of mobility. They're in sort of the top professions in the UK. Um, and we're seeing that even among those folks who get into those top professions, um, there's often quite a bit of inequality within that sort of s- scope of, of group group of jobs within, and within firms and within particular occupations and, and all of that. So that's part of the sort of broad context of the book is that question of um, how mobility works and what it looks like for people who've actually had a good, a good amount of mobility. Yeah. Um,
0: and I guess accounting for those differences is where these capitals come in, whether you've got access to economic capital, whether yeah. you've got that, the book talks about, you know, the kind of embodied cultural capital, or if you've got the social networks, some of that is how you explain why, you know, even if you're working in one of these top accountancy, um top architecture, top uh, creative jobs, there still seems to be this kind of gap. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, you touched on the idea of, uh, of cultural capital. And again, just to come back to Mark, I think you, you see this strong sense in, in his narrative about um, his reflections on his trajectory being facilitated by this sense of being able to, and these are his words, fit in with the Telly tribe. And, you know, it's really interesting him sort of reflecting on what that meant. Um, You know, it was sort of both a a sort of package of self-presentation, you know, being able to articulate in a certain kind of a way, being able to dress in a particular way. You know, he had lots of entertaining conversations with him and others in television about, you know, what's the right kind of trainers to wear in television might seem very superficial, Um, but was really powerful to these notions of fit. And and he made some quite explicit links between these, you know, what you might call the sort of rules of the game and his background. You know, there's an interesting quote where he talks about being in uh, meetings for a sort of television news program where they're discussing what programs to make. And he's basically saying, you know, the atmosphere in there, the feel of it, Um, reminded him or was exactly the same as the common rooms at his private school or the college common rooms at at Oxford. Um, Because, you know, it might seem like you're discussing what's the best program to make, but actually the axis on which people are making decisions about how good you are um, in that context is, you know, he's saying it's about how funny you can be in that setting. And I think, you know, there were these sort of elements, these what we call behavioral codes in the book, and I think very much reflect um, ideas of um, what people have done these types of jobs in the past and how their ideas about the right way to work um, have become sort of embedded, even institutionalised over time. And I suppose what we try to link that to is these ideas of, of, uh, 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 of sort of embodied cultural capital. These are elements of fairly arbitrary notions um, that are of, of, of sort of um, behaviors and tastes and etiquette that are rooted in most of those cases in sort of privileged
0: upbringings. I mean, what, what's interesting is the way that that plays out in who gets jobs, you know, who gets access, who gets in. And I guess that's something that, you know, maybe we might kind of like know in everyday life, you know, uh, it might be controversial in, in some quarters, but... It also plays out in terms of money. And one of the kind of most, you know, sort of stark and maybe most important ideas in the book is this idea of a a pay gap based on social class. Uh, And in particular, that it's almost not enough to get into television or to become an accountant or, you know, to kind of uh, make your way into an architecture firm. But actually, even when you're in, there are still kind of stark inequalities. And it'd be interesting to, to know both, you know, how that kind of pay gap works, uh, but also, like, in, in some cases, it's, it's you know, pretty stark, actually. It's, we're talking about a lot of money here.
2: Yeah. So overall, um, in our top jobs that we're looking at, um, privileged origin people earn about £6,400 more a year on average than people from working class backgrounds. Um, that's about 16% less for working class people than for privileged origin people. Um. So that's a substantial amount of money, right? That's that's. Uh. You know, I was, th- I was thinking about that amount of money, and I was thinking, you know, that that's the kind of money that would make a real difference in your day to day life, even among people who are towards the top of the income yeah. distribution, right? It's it's, um, it's a lot of money. Uh. So, so that's the sort of overall pay gap. Um. And I think one of the things, just going back to what we were saying about mobility earlier, you know, one of the things that I think we're doing in this book that that. Um, is new in some ways in, in mobility research is using multiple indicators of class position al- alongside each other to understand where people are, where people have come from, and especially you know where they are relative to others now. Um, usually, when people look at social mobility, they you know the economists use income. They look the, look at the association between your parents' income and your income, but then you can't see differences within people at the same income in terms of occupational status or anything else sociologists most often use class categories big big groups of occupations then don't look at income so i think that's part of what we're doing is just this very simple thing um, that a lot of people hadn't done before of, of seeing where class varies within what one group might call class and then crucially as well the, the intersections as yeah. well because obviously um, i think you know
0: social science has gotten better at doing intersectional analysis mm-hmm. and not just kind of saying class, gender, race, as you know, mm-hmm. separate categories. But I guess, you know, kind of being intersectional is one of the crucial questions that you try and answer with the class pay gap, particularly, I guess, the kind of sense of double disadvantage that goes on.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, we were, I think we were quite struck, actually, by how significant um, those double disadvantage figures are um, if you are a woman from a working class background Um, it's really quite uh, incredible. And I think it's sort of interesting in a way um, and perhaps reflects to some extent the way we imagine upward social mobility, particularly in this country. It's very gendered. Um, We have this sort of tale of the working class boy done good, right? And it's quite powerful. It comes across through the way we narrate the stories of people like David Beckham and Alan Sugar. Um, And if you look at the cultural tropes and... Um, and stories we have available to tell us and inform our sense of women's upward mobility, you know, they are hyacinth bouquet, and, you know, they are stories of, um, of, of, of sort of social climbing, of pretentiousness, of pushiness, um, and I think there is an interesting element to which this is fundamentally, I think, an intersectional story, and I think the innovation for us, and, and, and I think we're right in saying we're the first to be able to quantitatively look um, at those intersections between class origin and gender and ethnicity
0: in um, in people's pay. I mean, gender pay gaps, you know, yeah. there's a lot of, sort of research here, but also there's a lot of debate. And I guess what, what's interesting in the book is you kind of try and meet things head on in terms of saying this is a serious issue and it's not just explained by how old you are or what kind of job you're doing or
2: what kind of education you've got. Um, so the overall pay gap between working class origin women and privileged origin men in our data is about nineteen thousand pounds a year. Wow. Um, so privileged origin men are making about thirty seven percent more than uh, working class women. Um, so it's really yeah yeah that's sixty four hundred pounds is a lot of money. Nineteen thousand yeah. pounds is, is as much as many people live on in a year. Um, so that's the that's the overall gap. And yeah, I think you know one of the things that we're really um, we're we're really conscious of is the way that this work draws on work that's been done on gender and racial pay gaps on class. class glass ceilings as opposed to only class ceilings. Um, And that, you know, the argument of the book is not that we should pay attention to class instead of these other things, Mm -hmm. or that class is the master status and everything else is sort of a a follow on. Um, The focus of the book is on class um, because that's what we felt like we could really add, but we tried to be as attentive as we could to the other Sort of intersections of inequality that we have so there's a you know we show the the intersection of the gender class uh pay gaps we show um that there's a double disadvantage also for many uh racial ethnic groups in the uk um that many privileged origin uh for example the average earnings for uh privileged origin pakistani and bangladeshi people are lower than the average earnings for white privileged origin people and so on i mean
0: One thing that kind of um, comes through towards the end of the sort of opening section of the Mm -hmm. book, uh, which I guess deals with the kind of the quantitative approach, is what isn't explained. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of interesting that the book has got, I guess, a sort of mixed methods Mm -hmm. approach. And it'd be good to hear sort of why you thought that was kind of necessary. And then in turn, kind of some of the decisions you made about how to uh, drill down into um, what's going on underneath the, the class paper.
1: I mean, I think one of the
0: things just to follow up from this point, you know, the lessons
1: that we learned from the the voluminous uh, glass ceiling literature is is actually a really robust sort of methodology for digging into pay gaps, and what might be explaining them. Um, And that sort of informed, I suppose, our initial strategy, which was using this very uh, extensive um, national level survey data, the Labour Force survey to look at what drivers of this overall pay gap um, might be found there. Um, And I suppose the the point there was that there were a number of really powerful drivers, um, educational attainment, um, where in the country you work, what sort of firm you work in. Um, All of these things told us um, important um, aspects of the explanatory story but they still left about half of the pay gap unexplained, even when you take into account a person's educational credentials, their level of experience, the hours they work, the particular um, job they're working
2: in, the, you know, the size of the firm, all of that.
1: Yeah, you still see this significant pay gap. So I think that was really the, 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 the starting point then for shifting focus and saying, well, this to some extent is how far large scale quantitative data can take us. What we need to do now is um, is find a different sort of lens, um, a, a more qualitative lens, um, but also one that allows us to dig into what's going on inside individual organisations. So we went behind the closed doors of a number of elite employers, uh, television, broadcasters. We talked about uh, an architecture practice, multinational accountancy firm. We also looked at self-employed actors and we did about 175 interviews across those um case studies. Um, and I suppose they revealed a, 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 a number of things, really. I think in some ways, an important starting point was this idea that it's not about the class pay gap It's not about equal pay for equal work. It's about what you might call sorting. The people from working class backgrounds are sorting horizontally into less prestigious and less high-paying departments within organisations, and also... Clearly vertically, there's this ceiling effect where they're not reaching
0: the top positions. I mean the the question that flows really naturally from that, which I guess is the entire rest of the book, is why. Like <laughs> why there is this, this class ceiling. And maybe we'll pick up on, on a couple of kind of key ideas. One, you know, really sort of obvious thing is this kind of um, you alluded to it at the start, this idea about the kind of the bank of mum and dad. And in some ways, this goes against, I guess, the kind of where the economists are in terms of explaining uh, occupational trajectories through human capital. Um, And you kind of, I guess, have a sort of sociological uh, account for that. So it'd be interesting to kind of unpack that bank of mum and dad idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... the basic idea is that there's a lot of points in career trajectories, even beyond the moment when people have finished university, if they've gone to university is another question, um, when, you know, you're figuring out what you're going to do next and financial concerns matter, right? Um, Lots of types of careers, you need to have an internship, often unpaid or very low paid. um, And if you've got financial support from your parents, that's way more possible than if you don't. Um, And there's also a lot of firms, especially in the sort of cultural and creative sectors, but but not only there, where a lot of the work is going to be contingent. It's going to be contract-based, and you can't rely on having a paycheck every single week. And if you can't rely on having a paycheck every week, you can't pay rent on a flat. You can't, you know, live your life. And so a lot of the working class people that we talked with who wanted to be in some of these, you know, who wanted to be in television or who were trying to make their way in in acting were being sorted out because they couldn't manage that financial uncertainty. They did it for a while and then decided to move into a more stable part of the field where um, where they would know that they'd have that paycheck in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, like, one of the things I, I particularly like about the book is the sense that it has lessons way beyond Britain. Yeah. And there are obviously kind of, you know, specific things about Britain's economic geography, uh, not just in terms of its uh, cultural industries, but also in terms of the City of London as a kind of key site for professional service firms and architecture and stuff. But, you know, you can draw in mean parallels with LA and New York and the States and, Absolutely. you know, like just the relentless cost of living in these places almost makes it kind of rational not to get involved in those jobs because, yeah, you'll be homeless if you try. So, I mean, there's not just the kind of economic explanations, though, obviously. And I guess one of the kind of key things that the book does is try to highlight, um, again, things that I guess people are sort of aware of, but then the book crystallises it. So one thing we, we might talk through is this idea about kind of social networks, Mm. but also having particular people at the top who are willing to kind of like almost take you on as a project.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think often um, we think of the power of networks through this sort of slightly fleeting, sometimes even sort of shallow caricature of the arch networker. Um, And I think, you know, those sorts of weak ties are are clearly important to to career trajectories. And they were important in in the narratives of our, Respondents, But interestingly, when you talk to people who got to the very top across these case studies, invariably, when they talked about what was really central in, in their stories of, of, of upward mobility, it was very often a small handful of very close contacts, not fleeting contacts, but actually ties that we sort of characterize, even if they themselves didn't, um, through this idea of sponsorship. I think the key thing about this idea of sponsorship is that it's often taking place sort of beneath formal mechanisms. Okay, this is people who are reaching out and really advocating um, behind the scenes for their protégé, for the person they want to bring through. And I mean, in accountancy, they they literally have this phrase bringing through the next generation of partners. It's it's really quite powerful. Um, And I suppose the sociological point on this idea of sponsorship is that, although often these people would premise their discussions about these contacts as about, you know, this was about talent. They, they spotted my talent or I spotted their talent, depending on if it was, the sponsor or the sponsee. But when we sort of went back to the genesis of those relationships in the interviews, what was interesting was it was very rarely based on work performance or work, you know, activity where the connection had started. The the af- affective energy had been formed usually through a sort of cultural connection, a sense of cultural commonality, um, shared taste, shared humour. Um, and I suppose what we argue is that, therefore, they, these sort of sponsor relationships are sort of homophilous, right? It's like attracting like. But when you see, as we do, that those at the top are disproportionately from privileged backgrounds, that like attracting like is re- reproducing the class.
0: Yeah, like it's really interesting, in the kind of sense of like a cultural fit and who fits in in some ways, you know, that might be a totally reasonable thing that would occur in organisations and labour markets that, you know, you've got to work with people that you get on with, you know, we've all got jobs to do, that kind of stuff. But actually, because of the structure of um, these jobs and who is doing them already, you end up with really unequal um, social outcomes. And particularly that idea about kind of, you know, sort of the right fit. Mm. Um, and again, you know, maybe if we've done economic, social, this would be our cultural capital uh, kind of explanation. Could could you tell me a bit maybe, I mean, the, the thing that really comes through in the book is is tele and that kind mm. of sense of like fitting in with television. There's been a lot of, you know, long-standing sort of history of sociology that's dealt with like how you fit into a firm. And, you know, if we're thinking about um, glass ceilings and gender, there are questions about why it is that, you know, sex of infirm occurs. But in television, it wasn't to do with like pinstripe suits and, you know, kind of like displaying competence, like playing golf and this kind of stuff. It was like about, you know, how much of a hipster are you? And it'd be <laughs> interesting to hear that, like that very different version of cultural capital, but still the need to fit in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, what was interesting is you often, you've got this initial conversation with people in TV, which was that, You know, they had chosen that career precisely because it didn't have those formal expectations. You know, it didn't have, you know, the corporate polish that we describe as the sort of behavioural norm or code in in accountancy. Instead, you know, many of them had been attracted to TV on this idea that it was sort of open. um, And that was, you know, that was sort of, there was a sort of informality to the culture and to the codes of behaviour. What was interesting over time was seeing that 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 informality, which we actually call studied informality ultimately um is actually an incredibly sort of subtle and intricate um uh way of being um and you know i mentioned a bit of it in relation to mark before but it you know there were these components that were actually quite opaque around you know when do you um swear in meetings who knows when to put their feet up um Um, how do you know when to um, kiss rather than handshake your colleague these sort of things what we were finding from most of our sort of upwardly socially mobile respondents is that these codes were um, incredibly difficult to navigate and invariably left them with this sense that they that everyone else seems to know each other there's a sense of familiarity that i feel shut out of they, I know they don't actually know each other, but there's a sense of ease and familiarity that they have that comes from this instinctive understanding of how to operate in this. And if you don't, I think it, it, it was act, it acted as a very profound barrier.
2: I think there's an a analogy to be made um, to national mobility, right? Um, that description that Sam just gave of what it feels like to be a working class origin person in a... You know, in a posh job of some sort is basically what it felt like to be an American in the UK. for a few years, Right. <laughs> um, I know there are norms here and I'm working really hard at learning them and I can kind of see that, that I don't quite get them, but I, you know, it took me a year to realize I was talking louder than everybody else. And <laughs> that time people were probably annoyed with me and I'm probably doing it now because I've been back in the States for a year or two, two and a half years. Um, right. Those, those sorts of things, you know, you can you can get better at them. You can learn a sort of second language of culture in lots of different ways. And the point of the book is not that working class people can't, or can't do that. Um, and the point isn't even that they you know that, of course, everybody has to adapt a bit to the to the places you work and the norms and the cultures. Um, but the the dominant culture at these workplaces is so far from what people are used to that it's it's for many people feels like a constant sense of being just a little bit of an immigrant or a little bit foreign um those aren't the words that they necessarily use but i think there's a real there's a real parallel and that's work um and it's work that um you know that takes takes a toll and that makes it harder for other people to make sense of you and i think just to think about the key thing in a way around class ceiling is is that frequently
1: those things are misread as merit so gatekeepers see your ability to navigate that as a sign that you're the right type of person whereas the point that i think daniel brings up quite nicely when you think about it in this sort of fairly banal way you know us uk cultural difference is that it's fairly arbitrary right i mean you know how loudly you speak is clearly something that's so fundamentally situational and contextual um but, it, you know, these things really mattered in the workplace in terms of notions of who, who is appropriate to progress and promote.
0: And I guess it's particularly depressing in the context of those occupations that, I guess, orientate themselves to being open, being meritocratic, exactly. being about talent. And, you know, it, in some ways we might expect, um, you know, there being a particular sets of appropriate behaviour to be an accountant or to be providing professional services to, you know, a bank or a legal firm or something like that but in particularly media occupations that almost try and say we're the opposite of that be who you want to be bring yourself a whole self to work these sorts of statements but just so long as that self has been to public school (laughs) has got an Oxford education (laughs) and yeah you know kind of knows how to be enough of a hipster but not too much yeah and the
2: the question for those sorts of things is 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 there any link between being able to do that and producing good television or you know, being good at giving tax advice or, or whatever it is. And I think for us, in many cases, it seems pretty clear that the the answer is no, there's no real link between those two things. But
1: it's an interesting, but it's an interesting point. In a way, it's one of the points that I think, you know, we had a bit of pushback, you know, there's a couple of people, for instance, at the television channel who said, you know, you're critiquing us. A, um, isn't it ironic? You're critiquing academics coming to critique us for being too highbrow. Um, (laughs) but which was amusing but also saying well how do you know what what you need to be to be a good tv commissioner and i think there's an element of um having to be aware as a researcher of the limitations of being able to definitively answer that um but i think as much as we can really sort of extrapolate out to i don't know reasonable reliable markers of of work performance or intelligence and i
0: guess the issue is if we sort of move slightly away from class and think about um, race and ethnicity, you know, as particularly American cultural production changes to become, to be blunt about it, less white. Mm -hmm. And you see the success of, you know, kind of major um, black-led or reflecting, you know, black American stories as hits in America. It's clear there are audiences that aren't being served. And, you know, there are questions about, is this to do with the way we organize cultural production? And the kind of people who are doing the organizing as well. Absolutely.
1: And that's why I think, you know, one of the the reasons why in the book we focus on cultural occupations, because I think they have this outsized impact on the way society sees itself.
0: I mean, I suppose there's kind of like um, a bigger question here, which the book gets the grips with at the end. um, And you've got a kind of, I guess, advice for people who, you know, are kind of practically trying to change things. But is this question about is social mobility a good thing overall? I mean, is it something where we should be saying, actually, you know, it's not enough to say we'd like more working class women uh, to be working in professional services, for example. There are clearly huge rewards in these occupations. Uh, You know, you can have a great lifestyle, you get social status. Or maybe we should be saying, actually, you know, we need something more profound to happen, which means that these occupations aren't at the top of the hierarchy, aren't giving these rewards, and maybe things are kind of equalized in in a different way that doesn't require mobility.
2: I mean, I think there we have suggestions in the book, and I think there are things that ought to happen to e- to make access to high paying jobs and access to the top of the various professional jobs we talk about more equal. But I think broadly, as long as there's really wide inequality in the first place. You're never gonna have equal access to, to anything, right? There's too many different barriers that get put into in the place in the way of poor and working class people, um, in terms of education, in terms of you know every step of the of the way to careers. You're always gonna have an overrepresentation of people from privileged backgrounds in the most desirable, highest paying, most prestigious jobs. Um, and there's not, you know, there's, there's lots that can be done at the individual and organizational level to make that somewhat better. But the broader problem, I think, is really inequality.
1: And I think just to quickly bring you back on that, I think, you know, one of the things I see as the pet project of this book in the way it's written, which I suppose we're hoping is going to have, um, you know, impact beyond um, the academy, is I suppose we're trying to, um, in some ways, sort of dismantle, very widely held beliefs and um, certainties in the functioning of Britain's meritocracy. Um,
2: And And the rest of the world. I mean, all of this really essentially applies in the US and other places as well. Yeah, and I I, I think that by doing that in a way that
1: is fairly, hopefully, empirically robust, once you can dislodge that idea... I think perhaps some of the wider questions about inequality might be more possible to have. And so I'm sure for some people we are, they would see this as continuing the fetishization of the top or of social mobility more generally. Um, We would accept that critique, but I think more generally we would see this as having um, as being one part of the way you would um, address this over time um, in terms of, in terms of getting inequality um, on the agenda as well as notions of fluidity. and I,
0: I mean, you, you kind of gesture to that as sort of, you know, the project underlying you know, the, uh, the book, and then, you know, you mentioned this kind of broader sort of focus. And is that the kind of thing that you're both interested in, in next in terms of kind of future projects? I mean, obviously, you're back in the States now. You know, uh, I'm sure there isn't the kind of same obsession with Britain's weird class structure <laughs> over there that, you know, dominates kind of much... Uh, discussion in British life um, and are there kind of future book projects uh, that you've got sort of in the uh... air?
2: I mean for me I think there actually you know I had a a PhD project that I sort of ignored for a while while we worked on this that's about political campaigners in the US but one of the things doing this book sort of helped me see is the ways that some of the same dynamics play out even though it's a different Um, occupation, even though it's a different national context, you know, this question of how do people, and even, you know, in political campaigns, there's a clear outcome every time somebody wins or loses. And yet the question of who's good at it is really tricky. And they, um, you know, they're not sure themselves, or they have a gut sense, but they can't really put their finger on it. So this, you know, this stuff that we're talking about about, you know, how do we evaluate each other? How do we reward each other? Who gets to be in these sort of key decision making roles? I think applies to way, way more um, countries contexts than just what's in the book.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like we've barely kind of covered all of the really, you know, kind of rich information um, and, and analysis in the book. But it is one of those things where, as you were talking, it struck me that questions about the bank of mum and dad probably come up quite a lot in the ability to do political campaigns because, absolutely. you know, there's lots of money, but it's not clear. Well, there are lots of issues about where the money goes, yeah. but, you know, if you're
2: trying to get a job in it... Oh, yeah. It's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's very, very similar. Only people who can work for essentially no money um, for the first many years of their career can really enter that, that world.
0: And what about you, Sam?
1: Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, for me this project in a way has sort of further piqued a a sort of ongoing interest in in elites and in all sorts of elements of what the abilities that that people have once they have an outsized influence and level of power. But also I suppose it's also kind of piqued an interest in in where these things uh, and patterns, you know, we talked about the sort of, historical residue of these behavioural codes I suppose I've become particularly interested in history Um, and the project that I'm working on at the moment is sort of trying to chart the way in which the British elite so not those in elite occupations but those at the very apex positionally of British society have changed over time over the last 100 years so we've got this back catalogue of who's who which is Britain's sort of foremost catalogue of the elite been sort of digging into that the various ways um, in the last couple of years with a colleague Aaron Reeves to sort of think about how various aspects of the British elite have changed over time.